Hello, and welcome to class session number 21, our final class on The Hobbit. Anyway, okay, so at the end of class last time, we were talking about luck and the larger patterns that we can begin to see in the luck of Bilbo and his companions. And I want to just kind of pick up on that a little bit more as we go through the end of the story. Um, we can see, as I was talking about last time, the kind of conspiracy of events, even those which seem to be both a combination of unfortunate events which happen from outside and a combination of their own bad choices too, kind of like Turin if you think about it, some bad things that they do and some bad things that just happen to them, all of which conspire to lead them on this uniquely fortunate path. It all turns out exactly, it could not have turned out well any other way. Um, and when they get towards the end of this path, the, 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 their luck and the discussion of luck begins to take a different kind of turn. That is a different emphasis on it. We begin to talk about actual prophecy. Not just, gosh, isn't it funny that, that, that these fortunate things keep happening. When they get to Lake Town, there's this discussion of these, ancient, these songs, ancient to the men who live there, of course, uh, these songs that sing of the return of the king under the mountain, that someday the king under the mountain will return. And we see several different levels of response to these songs. Um, that is, first we get, we get some spontaneous and highly naive responses by many of the men of the lake. Uh, you remember when Thorin shows up, when Thorin and Bilbo... Uh, they're, they're going as scouts into the town because, uh, and Philly and Keeley, I think, because they're the only four like conscious members of the party. The rest of them are all passed out from having just been gotten out of the barrels. Uh, and they go in and, and, and they're all bedraggled and, and everything. And Thorin steps into the guardhouse and says, I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, the king under the mountain. I have returned. And in response to this, several of the guards run out of the building and look up towards the mountain like they expect to see rivers of gold immediately starting to flow. And, I mean, this is obviously a kind of a silly reaction um, uh, and an an extreme on the naivete front. But, nevertheless, it shows that these these people clearly take these prophecies seriously. Um, What's the elves' response? There are some elves there, too. That is, the raftmen of the king who, who, who who are rafting down with the barrels. How do they respond to the... Revelation of the king under the mountain, returned, the longed for, that cometh at unawares, which has happened here in Lake Town. Travis? Uh, well, at first, they just like tell the master of the city, you know, uh, these guys are prisoners. I don't know what they're talking about. You can probably give them back. <laughs> right, exactly. These are escaped prisoners. This is not, this is not the, 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 the homecoming foretold of old. Um, and Thorin is able to accommodate this, Right. It is true that we were wrongfully waylaid, but nothing can forestall the homecoming foretold of old. And then everyone, you know, this that remarkable enthusiasm. The elves, that's their first response. Hey, no, no, these are just some vagabond dwarves. But the elves start to get afraid and begin to think that perhaps their king has made a serious miscalculation. The elves take these prophecies seriously too. And when they see what's happening, they're like, dang, maybe this is actually... Uh, you know, a major movement of something that's supposed to happen. And maybe uh, by imprisoning Thorin and trying to stop him, you know, the Elven King has gotten on the wrong side of this prophecy. They clearly take it seriously. Who takes it least seriously? Isn't it the master of The master of Lake Town, whose focus is all on tolls 
and trade and income, right? Money bags, as he will be called by the people disparagingly later on, right? Um, But even he comes around when the dwarves are getting ready to leave, right? He's wait- he, he believes from the beginning that, th- that Thorin's a fraud and he's waiting for him to be exposed. And so he pushes at the end to, to, you know, for them to go, thinking that the dwarves are never going to actually go up to the Lonely Mountain and, and, and do anything with, with, with Smaug. I mean, he believes that this is never going to occur. And then when Thorin starts talking about this, even the master begins to get afraid. Whoa, they're seriously going to go after the dragon? Maybe there really is something to this. So everyone, on some level or another, begins to take this seriously, that, these, that this guy might really be the king under the mountain and that the old prophecies are really going to come true. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, very briefly, we've already seen a prophecy about this. We don't need to hear about the songs in Lake Town in order to know that there's a prophecy. There was a prophecy written on the map. What's written in moon letters? You remember what is written? What are the instructions? In plain letters is written, you know, four feet high and three may walk abreast with a little hand pointing to the side of the mountain where the secret door entrance is. The moon letters talk about the thrush knocking in Durin's day, remember? Stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Notice even the tense of this, right? This is not, uh, the first part is instruction, stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks, but even when the thrush knocks is a prophetic statement. There's going to be a thrush there, and the thrush is going to knock. And at that moment, on Durin's day, stand in this one place, and the sun, the last, the, this, this, the last light of Durin's day will shine, up, will shine upon the keyhole, and that's how it will be revealed from beginning to end. It's a prophecy. And, of course, the thrush turns out to be not just a random element of this prophecy. That is, it's not just, you shall know that you are in the right place if there's a thrush there. But, of course, the thrush itself is one of the primary vehicles of the great events that are happening. If if there were not a thrush on that stone, then Smaug would never die. Well, I mean, wouldn't be killed here. Um, Remember... Bilbo's comment to himself uh, that he, does it. he didn't expect anyone to remember that he was the one who discovered the weak point in Smaug's armor, uh, which is just as well because no one ever did remember or give him credit for that. Well, even fewer people remember or give credit to the thrush for what the thrush. I mean, it's the thrush and Bilbo are the two who are instrumental in connecting the dot there between Smaug and his armor and Bard with his bow, right? Um, so the prophecy of the moon letters includes, though it doesn't describe the role of the thrush itself, which, again, if it hadn't been there, there would have been no point in the secret door. In other words, from the beginning, there's clearly something larger going on here. Um, when they get the map at the beginning, they, this is, you know, Thorin is hopeful that this, this is some kind of, this will give us some kind of advantage. This at least gives us a, a, perhaps the beginnings of a plan for what to do when we get to the mountain. Remember, Bilbo is, 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 would, would sort of like to point out the fact that getting rid of Smaug has always been a weak spot in their plans. In their, you know, they, they've just been focused on getting to the Lonely Mountain and then not really knowing what to do when they get there. 
But it turns out they don't need to know what to do when they get there. That what becomes clearer and clearer, they're just instruments of a larger thing, of a larger prophecy, of a larger movement, which again, the elves are beginning to, to smell that. Uh, and, and it becomes clearer and clearer until... And, and Bilbo and his luck, his unusual luck, is one of the chief instruments of it. Um, you know, we talked about some of the passages which you know, begin to more and more locate luck, not just in the random events surrounding this, but in Bilbo personally. Right, that passage... Uh, Aaron, I think it was you that read about the, his three very useful possessions, right? Being, uh, you know, wits, a magic ring, and luck. Um, that moment, Tony, that you recalled, where luck of an unusual kind was with him on the night when they escape in the barrels. You know, his whole attitude has changed it. You know, at Thorin, in his big impressive speech, when they get through the secret door, draws attention to the fact that, that an unusual allowance of luck uh, Bilbo has, and he says, I, you know, Maybe I've taken to trusting my luck more than I used to back in the old days, by which he means last year, you know, last summer, um, a few months ago. Um, But now he trusts to his luck. Why is Bilbo along in the first place? Why did they get somebody? He's a burglar. He's a professional burglar, yes. That's why they... Well, then they couldn't find a hero. But why were they looking for... They were looking for somebody else. And so when they're looking for somebody else, they decide, well, they, they, ideally they'd like to get a hero or a warrior, but they'll settle for a burglar if they can't, but... Oh, because they have 13 and that's unlucky. He's the lucky number, right? As he labels himself to the dragon. He's brought along for luck from the beginning. The other thing, the other phrase from back from chapter one, which in retrospect, really resonates throughout this, the whole book. He's not just the lucky number. He is not just the agent and instrument of luck throughout this story. He is also, as Gandalf labels him in chapter 1, the chosen and selected burglar. Um, when this thing begins to look more and more like some kind of conspiracy and less and less like a series of fortunate and unfortunate events, all of which seem to be leading uh, towards this remarkable end, uh, it begins to seem that, yes, he actually has been chosen and selected and not just by Gandalf. Gandalf, of course, in the end, draws attention to this. Uh, And he and Bilbo end the book with an explicit discussion of this. There on the last page, on 272. Then the prophecies in the, of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion, says Bilbo. Of course, said Gandalf, and why should not they prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself? You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in the wide world after all. Now, what's the emphasis here? Tell me what we learned from that last passage. Because it's, it's, I think there are several things. Marta? Well, the, um, you know, it's funny because you were just saying that he was chosen and selected. But in this point, Gandalf is kind of says, well, you are very little, though. I mean, you are, you are a tool in this, in this grand plan, and that grand plan isn't yours, after all. Yeah, yeah. Bilbo is thinking of 
the adventure as his adventure, right? And therefore, doesn't think of it in these big sweeping senses. This is just his own, his, his, his adventure. His little subtitle for his book is There and Back Again, right? This is the story of, um, he, he, Bilbo's title for the book is There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Holiday, right? Here's like what I did on my vacation. Um, and Gandalf is pointing out both, this is much bigger than just you. Yes, of course these larger prophecies came true. You don't disbelieve the prophecies just because you happen to be in. Just because you think of it as your story doesn't mean that, you were, that this was not also part of the bigger picture. But of course, also, as you say, that doesn't make you big, right? That doesn't mean that you, are, you were the instrument of destiny here. It was, but, it was a, but in the end, it was about more than you. And you were one part played an important part but in the end, this wasn't your story, Bilbo. You were part of a much bigger story. Um, and I've, this, this as the ending of the story is, I think, very important, very significant. Because throughout, the story seems simple. I, that, you know, his tone and his vocabulary throughout, this is a simple little story about Hobbit's holiday, right? But he is drawing attention to, this is just a little part of a much bigger story. Um, there will be a, a famous moment that we will come back and talk about in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam are talking to each other about stories and taking part in stories. It's a really important moment. Um, it comes in the two towers. Watch out for that. Um, but you can see what Gandalf is talking to Bilbo here, being connected with that, showing to Bilbo, you're part of a big story. There's a, there's a large story going on here, um, and and it's it's not about you're not the hero of this story, even though he was used importantly in that story. Um, speaking of things being used as part of a larger story, though, we get a couple of you catastrophes at the end of this story? What are some of the you catastrophes we get? One of the classic Tolkien you catastrophes happens at the end of The Hobbit. Marvin? Um, when Bilbo looks up and he's like, the eagles, the eagles are here. Uh, yes, the eagles, the eagles are coming. Um, <laughs> Bilbo's jumping around and crying out, you know, squeaking at the top of his voice. The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. It it should have that you catastrophic feel to it. Tolkien comments on this in one of his letters actually, going back and rereading The Hobbit after years after he'd written it. Uh, he commented on that particularly and said, "You know, coming back to it years later, the coming of the eagles does have that you catastrophic feeling to it. I mean, it does have exactly the give exactly the kind of, you know, the kind of of of, of thrill that a real you catastrophe should have. It's one of the things that he kind of looked back on the Hobbit and was was kind of satisfied with. Uh, the arrival of the eagles definitely a you catastrophe. We hear about another one though we don't see it. What's the turning point in the battle? When is the battle officially over? When Bayorn shows up. <laughs> Bayorn shows up and dang, get out of his way. I mean, he just starts throwing, the, you know, like, he just charges. Like, he comes in and attacks 
the goblin army from the rear by himself, like charges into the rear of the <laughs> goblin army, throwing them all over the place. Takes a break, right? Picks up Thorin's body, takes him over. Here you go, take care of Thorin. Hang on, I'm going to go back and finish routing the army single-handedly, and then wham, he comes back in, t- scatters the bodyguard of Bolg, takes down Bolg, the king of the goblins, and then we're done. Right? At that point, the battle's over. So uh, Bjorn's arrival is, you know, we sort of we hear about it, it is also eucatastrophic. Um, again, notice, what is eucatastrophic about them? They are unexpected. They are unpredictable. They are these acts of grace. That, you know, thinks it looked like everything was going to be bad, and then all of a sudden, they have no reason to expect the eagles to come into it to help them, right? The eagles live very far away. It's not their business, right? I mean, they're here fighting this. They're trapped. They have no... They would never even have thought to call on the eagles for help. And then, wham, they come in and rescue them. Yeah. But we did know they were coming because it was mentioned earlier. We knew they were coming. Yes. That is, we knew that they were, we, we saw that set in motion. Yes. Um, and so the anticipation of that, I think, actually augments rather than, than, than diminishing from our experience of it there at the end. But from the point of view of the people involved, it's not like, you know, they sent out for help from the eagles. Right? Um, but another thing that I'd like to point out, I think sometimes when, people, when we think about catastrophe at the end of this book, we tend to think of the turning points in the battle, which are, again, plainly eucatastrophic. Uh, but notice, the battle itself is a eucatastrophe. It's the worst thing that happens in the whole book. That is, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's the most tragic event. I mean, all these people die, and, uh, and he emphasizes that it's, uh, it's a horrible experience. But remember the situation. The goblins come in. First of all, the arrival of the goblins is just as sudden and unexpected as the arrival of the eagles is. And when does it happen? What is happening when the goblins charge in? You remember the moment when that attack occurs? It's a very important moment. Aaron? It's right as the dwarves are about to like sneak attack the elves and the men. Yes. It comes in exactly before... I mean, had the goblins come 10 minutes later, the dwarves and elves and men would have been, would have been in, in battle. You may remember, this is the tense moment that has been building up, right? Uh, that We've had the demand. Bilbo has handed over the Arkenstone. They had the parley where they, you know, they, they offered a bargain with the Arkenstone. They've made arrangements for this. But while... the the, eve, the night after Thorin agrees to hand over the gold in exchange for the Arkenstone, he sends messengers to tell Dan, his, his, his cousin, to hurry up, right, and get there. So they march, the dwarves march all night and arrive there in the morning, and they're in this standoff. The elves and, and men are trying to prevent the dwarves from getting into the mountain and reinforcing Thorin, knowing that it's going to get ugly if they do, and the, and the dwarves recognizing that they're both trying to keep them out and hesitating to attack them, charge in. I mean, they're starting to attack them. They're actually, like, running across the field towards each other, about to fight, when all of a sudden Gandalf pops up and says, um, the goblins are here, everybody stop, and immediately, boom, all conflict is off, right? Immediately, Dan and the Elven King and Bard, all three of them get together. Okay, we've got to quickly strategize how to fight the goblins, right? The battle is itself a catastrophe. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, everyone is saved. Think what was going to happen. They're trying to make Thorin think about what's going to happen. Gandalf is trying to make Thorin think about what's going to happen. The ravens are trying to make Thorin think about what's going to happen. 
Think about what you're doing. Even if we win, even if the dwarves beat the humans and the elves or survive, they're going to have established enemies all throughout their region. I mean, they, you know, the, 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 the raven keeps saying, what are you going to do this winter? How are you going to eat? Remember back in the old days, the dwarves didn't bother to grow any food. Why not? It was given to them by, because they, they could trade for it. They were fed by the humans who lived around them and who received in exchange uh, you know, the, 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 the craftsmanship of the dwarves. Because, I mean, what made the Lonely Mountain powerful, what made it significant was not just the wealth of the dwarves, but the harmony in which they lived with, especially with the, the humans. Though they were at peace also with the elves. And now, so now you're going you're gonna to alienate everybody? Now you're going to surround the mountain entirely with, with enemies? How are we going to eat? The treasure will be your death, Thorin, says the raven to him, trying to talk him out of this. Um, that danger is averted and suddenly and completely averted by the arrival of the goblins. And now everything is different. If not for the arrival of the goblins, we would have had terrible... Again, had they even been delayed, had they come 12 hours later, they would have won. Because right there, the elves and humans and dwarves would all have been killing each other for a day. And then the goblins would have come in and mopped up, right? So by coming exactly when they had, exactly when they did, they forestalled war. And not just forestalled war, they created peace. They created alliance. And as a result of the battle that happens, now we have real peace. Now we have real companionship among them. And we see Dan and Bard making arrangements with the gold. We see Dale beginning to be rebuilt. We see new and an even stronger peace being established between the dwarves and the elves. All because, thank goodness, we had a battle this day. All because the goblins... Wanted, were indulging their greed for the dragon's treasure, were indulging their desire for vengeance against the dwarves. That is for lots of bad reasons. But here is in other places, those who choose to do evil things for evil reasons will prove but Iluvatar's instrument in the making of things more wonderful than they could possibly imagine. And thus, the most horrible thing becomes the, really the greatest catastrophe. Even the victory in the battle doesn't quite compare in some ways to the significance of the battle itself and the changes that the battle itself brings about. Um, this kind of thing is totally why we read the Silmarillion first <laughs> before we read the other things because there's so much of this stuff, just these overall patterns in Tolkien's thinking, which the Silmarillion really spotlights uh, and which you can see all over the place when you do, after you do see them in the Silmarillion. I want to think about Bilbo, um, specifically about his, his identity as a burglar and his whole Took versus Baggins thing that we've seen going on since chapter one. When they open the door, the secret door, Thorin gives his big impressive speech. Now is the time for Bilbo to earn his reward 
for him to perform the, the deed that they brought him to do. This is, this is time for you to do what you've been hired to do. Now it's time for him officially to be a burglar. Now we've seen him already being a burglar and becoming more and more efficiently and effectively burglarious over the course of the book, right? But this is now your official burglar's duty. Go down the secret tunnel and see. And what happens? What does he do? In this moment when he is officially fulfilling his burglar's job, now he's, you know, for, you know, they thought he looked more like a grocer than a burglar. Now he's officially, formally the burglar, and off he goes. What does he do? And? proves himself to be a burglar because he successfully takes a golden cup. He takes the golden cup, two-handled golden cup from Smaug's lair, from the horde, and comes up with it. And he himself recognizes in doing this, he has fulfilled his charge. He has succeeded as a burglar. And there's some similarity, at least I would draw some similarity, between his outlook here and his outlook back with the trolls the first time he ever self-consciously tried to do something burglarious, right? There's that same sense of, I must live up to my job, right? I, I must be a burglar. And the, the difference, of course, being that then he had no idea what he was doing uh, and, and was kind of fumbling around for something burglarious to do now, he knows exactly what a, good, what a burglar would do, and is very proud of having passed the, passed the grade, right? You remember, what is he thinking to himself as he's running with the cup back up the tunnel? It's on page 194, you find it, Ken? Um, exactly. We'll hear no more of that. Exactly. More like a grocer than a burglar indeed. He's thinking back exactly to proving himself right back to that scene in chapter one. I have proven myself. I am really a burglar. I'm not a grocer. I have arrived. But what he does is disastrous. Not only does no good come of this, very bad comes of this. He effectively rouses Smaug for no... I mean, hooray, we have a golden cup on the side of the mountain. There's no point to it. Again, no positive point to it. And they get mad at him, right? All the dwarves are real happy to start with, and then Smaug attacks them, and, and, and they almost lose Bofor and Bomber, and they, they finally get everybody, and then they start blaming Bilbo. Oh, good job, Bilbo, stirring up the dragon. And Bilbo, appropriately, says, well, what did you expect me to do? I'm a burglar. I'm not a hero. You didn't hire me to kill the dragon. You hired me to steal treasure. I stole treasure. You ought to have brought 500 burglars, he says. Right? Um, I fulfilled my identity. And when he does, it's, it's, it's kind of disastrous. Now, later on, he says, just as conspicuously, now I am a burglar indeed. When does he say that? This is not the stealing of the cup, which was pointless. Elise? When he takes the stone? Yes. When he picks up the Arkenstone and hides it inside his pocket, he says, now I am a burglar indeed. And it's interesting because the golden cup 
appears to be him doing exactly what the dwarves would want, him fulfilling exactly his role. But it has a really bad outcome. Taking the Arkenstone, you know, when he says, now I'm a burglar indeed, he appears to be thinking, because now I'm burgling from the dwarves. He knows, he suspects at that moment that he should not be taking this thing, and not, at least not to conceal it and to keep it. And later on, he knows full well he's, he shouldn't be keeping it. You know, Thorin starts to be making threats of what he will do to anyone he finds hiding the Arkenstone, and he's thinking uncomfortably about the Arkenstone wrapped in his, his pillow, right? Um, he knows he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing here, but, ironically, just as doing what he was supposed to do had bad results, doing now what he's not supposed to do, being a burglar indeed, has really good results. Bill, or Gandalf affirms this. Right? When, in the chapter, conspicuously called a thief in the night, when he sort of goes on to fulfill his advanced burglar's role, stealing the Arkenstone, handing it off so that he can try to make peace between the dwarves and the elves and men, Gandalf approves him. Well done, Mr. Gandalf. And he's very, he's very happy with this. Notice Thorin also applies the label. When Bilbo admits up on the wall that they've built that he was that he was the one who gave them the Arkenstone, right? Thorin picks him up and shakes him. And he's so, he's, like, he's so angry at him, he's insulting him, he can barely get the words out. You descendant of rats, he calls him. You undersized burglar! <laughs> yes, yes, he is a burglar indeed. That's what he's supposed to do. He is, he, 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 and he's the chosen and selected burglar. Here he's fulfilling the role as burglar he was supposed to fulfill. But notice, why does he do this? What drives him to do this? Why does he keep the Arkenstone and hand it off to Bard? What's his thought process? Aaron? He said he's, he claims when he first picks up the stone, he's like, this is going to be my 114th of the treasure. He's kind of trying, I feel like he's kind of just trying to rationalize keeping the stone. Yes. At first, he picks it up just because he's really drawn to it. It's really beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's his first, and that's why he keeps it. And he says, yeah, he said I could pick my own 14th share, and I think if I got nothing else, I'd like to have this. Later on, he knows full well. You know, even at the moment, he's like, yeah, I'm not sure that my choice was meant to extend to this thing, but, uh, and then later on, he knows exactly well that it isn't. But you're right. It would be misleading to suggest that Bilbo's motivations towards the Arkenstone are 100% pure from the beginning, because they're not. They're not. And we see him come under the influence of the dragon spell, of, 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 of the lust of the horde, um, a couple times. The first time he sees it, it happens to him. When he sees the Arkenstone, it happens again. But he's not affected by the dragon sickness very much or for very long. Some are very susceptible to it, like the master of Lake Town. And Thorin. But Bilbo, he's not. Why not? What protects Bilbo from the dragon sickness? As, as it's called in the case of the, the master of Lake Town. Eve? He kind of has what he wants back in the and he knows it. I mean, he's been rambling about it the whole entire book, 
Just hold my nice comfy chair by the warm fire. He likes the yeah. comforts. He doesn't want shiny things. Yeah, exactly. He he doesn't. He's not. Yeah, treasure is not his goal. His own fireside back at home is his goal, right? He's looking forward to the back again. He's thinking about going home. Um, remember his egg riddle with Gollum. A box without hinges, key, or lid. Yet inside, golden treasure is hid. Right? Now, it's conspicuous from the beginning that here he is on the quest for the dragon's treasure in Lonely Mountain, and he's standing in a cave beneath a mountain telling a riddle about, tre- about golden treasure. But it's not gold, right? The answer to the riddle is an egg. Exactly. And, and we can, and I think especially in the context of Gollum's riddles, we should be, with, you know, with, with his mentioning of eggs, be thinking about birth and life as opposed to death and consumption that, 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 that Gollum is talking about. But at the same time, in a much simpler way, it's also eggs and bacon, right? It's also his own affirmation of life and, and, and his, his land of, of comfortable things. When he is sitting on the wall that they've built in the Lonely Mountain with the army spread around beneath him and the dwarves singing about the treasure and about coming war, he's up there thinking about eggs and bacon again. That's his treasure. And this protects him from the desire for the other treasure. He's got what he wants. Or he knows what he wants and he wants to get back to what he wants. In other words, it's his bag inside that really protects him at the beginning the grocer versus burglar uh you know uh, duality there with bilbo in chapter one looks like baggins versus took right his bag inside you know i bet bungo baggins did look a lot like a grocer um and he seems more like a grocer certainly more than like a burglar burglary is a tookish thing and when he goes in and signs up to be the burglar, this is characterized as his took side had won, right? So we're invited to connect burglary with tookishness and all of his resistance to adventure with his bag inside. And this continues. You'll remember in the, at the, when he begins to come home, we're told that, you know, that the took side was getting very tired, and the bag inside getting stronger and stronger. He ceases more and more to be interested in adventure and wants just to get home. Of course, he's always wanted to get home. And he's never stopped thinking about home. But here, ironically, in the final stages of his adventure, his final fulfillment of his role, of his identity as burglar, comes when he is acting Baggins-ish, not when he's acting Tookish. You see? It is him being Baggins-ish. Notice how he even adopts his, uh, his very Baggins-like business manner when he is talking to, to Bard and the Elven King and negotiating with them. Um, Thorin recognizes this of him in the end and recognizes that Bilbo's combination of Turkishness and Baggins-ishness um, is a very good thing. 
and has protected him. This is Thorin's dying words to Bilbo on 259. At the very bottom of 258. There is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sadder, merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. He reckoned, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold. He, this is Thorin apologizing. Not just for the things that he said to Bilbo on the wall, you know, descendant of rats, etc., but, um, but for falling into the dragon sickness, for putting everybody in jeopardy, for, for choosing war and violence and greed and vengeance um, for the sake of gold. What's Bilbo called by the Elven King? Elf friend, significantly. This is, uh, we will learn, we will see in the Fellowship of the Ring, a significant title which stays with you. Um, But he's given a personal title by the Elven King. It's just a couple pages later on 263. Bilbo the Magnificent. There it is. Bilbo the Magnificent. (coughs) And I name you Elf Friend and Blessed. Um, earlier on in their first meeting um, during the Thief in the Night chapter, um, the Elven King gives Bilbo one of the most awesomely backhanded compliments uh, that you ever hear. Bilbo Baggins, you are more worthy to wear the armor of elf princes than many that have looked more comely in it. (laughs) Uh, the armor of elf princes. When Bilbo puts on the elven, the, the elf prince armor that Thorin gives him there in the hall, uh, he says, "I feel rather magnificent." But I expect that, you know, he expects that people back home would laugh at him if they saw him wearing his armor. Um, he feels magnificent in the elf armor, but suspects that really it's a little bit silly. The elven king although the Elven King has already recognized that he doesn't look very good in it, uh, that he does, in fact, look silly wearing the elf armor, nevertheless, gives him in exactly that same word that title, Bilbo the Magnificent. Not because of how he looks or what he's wearing, but because of what he does, both with the Arkenstone, and uh, he names him Bilbo the Magnificent in response to the gift. Um, I'm assuming that the Magnificent is sort of in the tradition of that specific kingly virtue and not just necessarily overall awesomeness. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, um, yes, in the tradition of the kingly virtue. Um, it's a significant thing to be called magnificent. Um, yeah, it's a complicated word, but it, it's a word, uh, certainly, uh, whose history Tolkien would have been thinking about when he applied it. Um, and it's another example of one of so many words which we have cheapened over time. And there's so many words which we use just to mean superlative in a large but vague way, uh, which had, of course, much more specific, uh, a whole wealth of connotations which 
which we kind of ignore nowadays. Um, what happens to Bilbo when he goes home? The stuff's getting <laughs> <laughs> It's like another you catastrophe, right? And then everyone's like, oh, Bilbo's dead. Let's sell off his stuff. And then he returns from the dead, except they don't feel it to be, especially the Sackville Baggins do not feel that this is a, there's, there's nothing you about this catastrophe, right, from their, from their perspective. But, uh, but yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a f- funny and backwards you catastrophe. But, yeah, he, he comes home to find all of his stuff being sold off. Uh, how is he different? How's he different? He says he's lost his reputation. Yes, he's not as respectable as he used to be. Because remember, respectable used to mean what? <laughs> right, right. Respectable used to mean predictable. Never to do or say anything unexpected. You could always tell a Baggins' opinion on any subject without the bother of asking him, we were told in chapter one, right? And now... He's still, he hangs out with elves. Dwarves are still coming by. Significantly, you remember what he says to Balin and the other dwarves that are still alive when he leaves? There's another wonderful kind of took Baggins contrast moment when, they're, when they say, come back whenever you can, and when you return, the feast shall be splendid. And he says in response, when you come by, don't bother to knock. Remember the unexpected party before where they were all knocking. Now he's like, hey, don't even bother to knock. Just come in unexpectedly, right? That would be great. Tea is at four, but you're welcome at any time. <laughs> right? So I mean, the, contract between the, the contrast between the feast shall be splendid and tea is at four is another just wonderful little glimpse of sort of the two worlds there. Um, but of course, we see his, his attitude different. He was not okay himself with unexpected things uh, in, in, in chapter one. And we saw him handling his unexpected visitors, you know, not very well. And, you know, sitting on a little stool in the hallway and fanning himself while the dwarves were coming in. Clearly, he, he has changed in that way. So we can see why, according to the terms given originally, he is less respectable than he used to be. But, but what else? How, is his, how else has his perspective changed? Is he, for instance, is he happy? Is he happy at home when he returns? Kelly? It says um, his neighbors didn't think that he was respectable anymore, but he didn't mind. He was very content with himself. Yes. He's very content. Can you keep reading that passage there? Um, yeah, he was quite content, and the sound of the kettle on his hearth was ever after more musical than it had been even in the quiet days before the unexpected party. Good. What do we see here? He really enjoys the things. He enjoyed them before, but they have so much more weight now that he's been through the whole ordeal. Yeah. Think... Back to on fairy stories and Tolkien's vocabulary and on fairy stories. What has happened to Bilbo? He sort of made the journey into fairy and back. And now what happens? What does Tolkien predict is going to happen when he's talking about the consequences, the, the benefits of fantasy? 
He gets to see everything through a new lens. Recovery. Recovery is what Bilbo experiences here. Now, the sound of his kettle singing is more musical than it was before. You know, we might possibly think or guess or one might perhaps expect that, you know, when once Bilbo has been out adventuring in the wide world, now, you know, Hobbiton is going to be, seem so tame and drab in comparison. When you've been... Did you notice even the parallelism, right? When you've been to the Lonely Mountain uh, and seen the great halls and the mighty feasts and the dragon hordes to come back to the hill, right? The hill is going to seem really puny and your really beautiful hobbit hole beneath the hill might seem really small and shabby compared to the great dwarven halls under the mountain. But that's not what happens. In fact, it's almost the opposite of what happens. When he comes back... He loves his home even more and appreciates it even more and does see it with new eyes. Um, his whole life is enriched by it. He, he, it. It's the back again part is changed because of his journey there, right? Um, pretty cool. What other things did you notice? Anything else that you noticed about the end of the story? I've skipped over his second visit to Rivendell, of course. And we get two more elf songs. What do you notice in Bilbo's song? Save the songs with the spiders, which, as we mentioned last time, were not really very good. His first real song, page 269. His roads go ever, on, ever, ever on song. Notice at the top of 270, Gandalf's response to his song is, My dear Bilbo, something is the matter with you. You are not the hobbit that you were. Where do we see the change in this song? First of all, of course, just in the fact of the singing, is, uh, may, may we, Gandalf, to point that out. But what do you notice in the song, Louise? Well, unlike his middle, it's, like, it's about adventure now, traveling and not being scared to go out. It's kind of like a summary of this whole. Yeah. And it kind of summarizes up his, his change. Good, yeah, I think that this we can see this song serving as a kind of a kind of capstone, a kind of summary of what happened to him. And I, that contrast that you make is really great. I, I love that point. When he's telling riddles uh, in, in with Gollum during his journey, he's thinking about you know sun on the day, flowers and eggs and things like that. He's thinking about homey things. Now he's coming home and he's singing a song about you know, under mountains in the moon, right? He's thinking, he's thinking about eyes that fire and sword have seen and horror in the halls of stone. Look at last on meadows green and trees and hills they long have known. He's processing his experience of recovery through this song. How about the repeated line? Roads go ever, ever on. Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar. The roads keep going on, but the feet don't always keep going on. The feet come back home. And that introduces that move from, you know, eyes that fire and sword have seen, look at last on meadows green. Yeah, Haley? It's just to me that he's kind of realizing that there was a, bigger world that even if he has started out to venture out there's adventures that he still yet has to go on and yeah. there's adventures that 
other people are going on and that there's a lot going on that he doesn't even think about. Yeah, yeah, good, I agree. I mean, it connects, therefore, with Gandalf's last remark about the prophecies, right? We can see some recognition in his song here that he's just a little person in the wide world. Thank goodness, he responds, of course, when Gandalf says that. Um, His recognition that his little story there and back again is only a little part of this much larger story that's going on. Okay. Fellowship of the Ring for next time. We're going to be reading. You'll, you will have noticed, although, of course, The Hobbit reads a lot faster than The Silmarillion, that the number of pages I asked of you was much, long, was much larger than The Silmarillion. That is going to continue to be true in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, so if you hope to keep up with the reading and not fall hopelessly behind, you, you may want to take advantage of spring break as a time to get ahead on things. Just a little free suggestion there. Um, but anyway, have a good break. See you in a week. And that's all for The Hobbit. With the preliminary works, The Silmarillion and The Hobbit now done, only The Lord of the Rings lies before us. Remember that our spring break is next week, so we will start The Fellowship of the Ring on Monday, March 15th, when we will discuss the prologue and the first two chapters of Book One. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.